Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast is made by Just Speak and PopSock Media with Re News. The stories shared here represent individual opinions and experiences, and some names have been changed. This episode contains references to drug addiction, transphobia, racism, suicide and violence. There's also some strong language. If you choose to listen, please take care. Tēnā koutou e te whanau. Welcome back to True Justice, a podcast advocating for a more just justice system in Aotearoa. I'm Tommy Doran. I'm Anahaya Scottney. This is episode three, Survival. I don't know if my baby was alive or where my baby was. There were warning signs of him not being okay. She's naked from the waist down, she's drugged up, she's attached to her IV, like she's not going anywhere. In 2018, the Aotearoa prison population rate was one of the highest in the developed world, with 214 of every 100,000 New Zealanders in prison. That year, the Labour Party pledged to do something about it, setting a target of reducing prison numbers here by 30% over 15 years. It was a really ambitious target, but four years later, the prison population in Aotearoa has already dropped by 25%, from nearly 10,500 to just over 7,500. This is a huge reduction, and the exact reasons for it aren't clear just yet. Even the 2021 report from the Ministry of Justice said more work is needed to understand how it's been pulled off. But despite this incredible drop, one thing has remained constant. Māori still represent 53% of all prisoners, even though we only make up 16.5% of the national population. And Māori women remain one of the most incarcerated populations in the world, at 63% of the total female prison population. Like a lot of Māori family, it's always been a feature of my life. Like My earliest memories involve interactions with the police. I can't remember a time when they weren't a part of my life, basically. This is the incredible Awatea Mita. Awatea is such a legend, eh? Yeah, she's amazing. I know her mum's mahi, of course, because she's also a legend. She's the filmmaker and pioneer of Indigenous cinema, Mirata Mita. Yeah, that's her. So this is her daughter, Awatea, who hails from Ngāti Puro, Ngāti Pikiao and Ngāti Rangi. Awatea is a criminology teaching fellow at Te Heringa Waka and an activist and advocate for transformational change in the criminal justice system for Māori and especially wahine Māori. There's just so many stories, like even in the duration of this podcast, I could never cover the whole terrain of the heartbreak and, and the um, terrible conditions and um, you know, the way the, the, that that impacts on our wahine and on their whānau. Awatea's kōrero on the justice system is really personal and real, because like me, she's actually been through it. So her childhood was full of community, activism, strong adults and tight whānau. But then, when she was in her late 30s, Awatea went through a really tough period. Both of her parents passed away, she lost her job and her relationship all in quick succession. And she turned to drugs to help herself cope. 
Then, in 2013, Awatea was arrested for a non-violent drug crime and sent to prison for nearly two years. I heard the statistics before I went to prison about how many Māori women were filling up the prisons. But when I got there and, and saw it, like it was, you know, it was heartbreaking and it was shocking. And I wondered, you know, how did we get here? How, how did this happen? When Awatea went to prison, she sent her teenage son to live with her brother. But then 11 months into her sentence, Awatea's boy died in a drowning accident. I honestly can't even imagine what losing someone so precious would be like and not being able to be there with them. Yeah, I know, right? It's, yeah, it's pretty devastating, right? Hi. So Awatea applied to attend her son's tangi. As a minimum security prisoner, she was eligible for three days leave, but the prison bungled their paperwork, so she only ended up getting about 12 hours. And after travel, she only ended up spending 10 minutes with her boy before they buried him. Awatea had some kai with her whanau, and then she went back to prison. It's not an isolated incident. You know, no women were losing their children on the outside. And it's still happening, and there's limitations on whether or not they can attend tangi. All sentenced prisoners can apply for compassionate leave to attend a tangi, though it's up to the discretion of each prison director whether that leave is granted. Depending on things like security classification and any risks to the public, staff or the prisoner themselves. And it's also up to the prisoner to cover the costs of their own release. This includes transport and even paying the correction staff that need to accompany them. But if you're being held on remand, your lawyer has to make the application and a judge will decide if you can go. And then you're dealing with that heartbreak on the inside there were so many experiences for the woman. Like, you, you go through your own heartbreak and then you have really intimate knowledge of what it must be like um, for the other woman that you're with. As of March 2022, there were 419 women in our prisons. It doesn't seem like a huge number, but that's more than 400 families without their sister, auntie or mum. You know, and there's a saying that when a man goes to prison, the family can function, but when a woman goes to prison, the family falls apart. And that's because the the main actual caregiver, you know, in every sense of that word, is gone. I was eight months pregnant and my waters broke. I yelled out to the place, I'm in labour, my waters are breaking, and they ca- three of them came in. This is Becca. You've heard bits and pieces from her already. At the time of this story, Becca was heavily pregnant, trying to manage an addiction, and due to be seen in court on charges of stealing mail. And they said, bullshit, you're not in labour, you're just trying to fake it. You've got a history of faking medical whatever. They said, look down, um, my waters are breaking, and they said, get up on the table, we'll deliver your baby then. And I said, I'm not delivering my baby in a court cell. Even though the cells were pretty familiar to Becca at this point in her life, still, she didn't want to have a baby in there. So they rang me an ambulance, and there was a lot of confusion on whether I could go to the hospital because I was under corrections custody. And so 
the senior sergeant came from Auckland Central and she hopped in the ambulance with me and we went to Auckland Hospital. My mother, my godmother and my mother's partner had tried to come up and support me um, but they were turned away because they weren't approved visitors. And then two officers came up to the Auckland Hospital and they said, the medical staff, they said, we don't want her here. It's not in our jurisdiction. We want her at Middlemore. That's where we're covered and all of that stuff. So then Becca was handcuffed and driven to Middlemore Hospital. We asked corrections about the decision to move a labouring woman between hospitals and they said there's nothing in their policy that explains why this might have happened. Um, I got put in a room, handcuffed to the bed and then I stayed in labour for another two nights I stayed at Middlemore and then the baby wasn't coming so they sent me back to prison. I was in agony. I'd started to bleed and then... At this point, Becca had been in labour for days and she was finally sent back to hospital. Um, And different guards would come up every eight-hour shift. Some of them were really good, some of the guards were really good. Um, If I needed to be, like, checked over, like, or, like, an internal and stuff, they would, like, move up to the top of my head, you know, and other guards wouldn't. They would just stay down the bottom and I had no privacy or anything like that. This policy has since changed, and when an expectant mother is having an exam or in labour, corrections officers are now required to stand outside the door. At this point, Becca was really struggling, so she asked for the father of her baby to be let in to see her. He was an approved visitor, but he hadn't done four years at a prison, so he wasn't allowed to be up at the hospital. I had to like fight with lawyers and the PCO of the prison to get him to be um, up there to support me during my labour. Then, all of a sudden, the doctors figured out there wasn't much water left around the baby and things got more urgent. It had become dangerous, so they decided to give me an emergency C-section, but the baby's father wasn't allowed in the delivery room. So I remember being handcuffed to the bed when they were putting me to sleep. And then I just remember waking up and being handcuffed to the bed and on a drip and in so much pain because I had a cesarean and didn't know. And they were telling me about my complications and I didn't know if my baby was alive or where my baby was. Confused, scared and handcuffed to her hospital bed, Becca eventually figured out what had happened. Her baby had come four weeks early and had a collapsed lung, so she'd been rushed off to the neonatal intensive care unit. The next day, Becca was allowed to visit Bub, along with two guards. I was on, like, morphine or whatever it is for the pain. Um, So it's all pretty blurry, but I remember going up the back corridors and I couldn't hold my baby because she was on tubes and stuff like that. And then they said, yep, you don't need to be at hospital anymore. We'll look after your medical needs back at prison. The baby's father had come up and he wasn't allowed to see me again, but he took baby's placenta away and I was pushed downstairs into my wheelchair and then handcuffed and put in the paddy wagon and and taken back to prison. Every year, up to 10 babies are born in Aotearoa's prisons. Some prisoners with babies and children up to the age of 24 months are even able to live with their children in self-care units. 
and there are detailed policies in place for dealing with everything from prenatal care to childbirth to aftercare. But sometimes policy isn't followed or is misinterpreted and sometimes urgently needed policy change takes way too long to happen. Like Becca being handcuffed during her caesarean. As far back as 2004, the Ombudsman was condemning the handcuffing of pregnant and labouring women as particularly unreasonable and unwarranted. But it continued to happen for more than 15 years. But even in 2015, when Becca went into labour, the policy actually did say that mechanical restraints were not to be used on women in labour under any circumstances. In 2021, the policy was updated after a stuff investigation brought the continued handcuffing of pregnant and labouring women to light. When announcing the new policy, Corrections Chief Executive Jeremy Lightfoot said, Our previous policy was not fit for purpose and did not take into account the added stress that could be caused for expectant mothers. From then on, correction staff were instructed not to use handcuffs on women 30 weeks pregnant or more, or in labour. Why would you think, it's so foreign to me to think that it would ever be okay to handcuff a woman while she's giving birth. That has a lot to do with women being subjected to policies that are made for men. This is Awatea Mita again, and she's not saying anything outrageous here. Before 2017, corrections didn't actually have a specific strategy for managing women in their custody at all. The department has acknowledged publicly in the past and in recent communications with us that their policies and procedures for women in prison have been largely based on how men are managed and that this is not right. I, oh, you know, I actually feel like it's a real woman-hating thing to do, you know, a misogynistic thing to do. I'm not going to congratulate them for changing a policy that was so harmful, like you're, you're doing the bare minimum. And there are studies that show children born in distress, it has negative effects, negative consequences for babies. I think this is a good time to talk about a term that people have probably heard before, the prison pipeline. So the term prison pipeline refers to the fact that some people are much more likely to end up on a pathway to prison than others. For example, children with a parent in prison are at higher risk of future imprisonment themselves. 77% of those in the criminal justice system are themselves victims of violence. In 2017, it was found that 87% of people in prison weren't officially employed immediately before they were sent there. And then there's all the evidence related to the pipeline from state care to prison. A majority of that population within the prison system have been, one way or another, been connected to the state care system. This is Dr Elizabeth Stanley, the director of the Institute of Criminology at Teheringa Waka, and she's also currently one of my professors. In 2016, Dr Stanley wrote a book based on thousands of hours of research called The Road to Hell. And it's all about the people who were taken into state care as children in the 1950s up until the 80s you see this really clear trajectory from the state care system into our criminal justice system, into our prisons. You know, when they were picked up by the police, there'd already been a decade or so of reports around them and how they were dysfunctional and the kind of risks of these children who would never comply with institutional requirements. The big state care institutions which Dr Stanley studied were closed by the late 80s, but residences housing children in the care of the state remain and are overseen by Oranga Tamariki. 
There are supervised group homes which house four to five children, and these aren't kids who've gotten into trouble with the police. They've been removed from their whānau because the state says they can't take care of them. These homes are heavily monitored by Oranga Tamariki staff. Kids can't go into their own rooms during the day, use social media or listen to music without permission, which means leaving the building without a staff member is out of the question. And then there's youth justice residences. And this is where kids who've been arrested or remanded are housed until they've served their time or they age into an adult prison. Of all the kids and teenagers in the youth justice residences, 88% have had oranga tamariki involved in their lives. And of the 10 to 13 year olds, it's more like 96%. In other words, the state care to prison pipeline is still going strong. It seemed to me that we were literally birthing babies into handcuffs who were going to be strip-searched further down the line at a youth residence. We know those in our prison systems are uniquely vulnerable. Many of them have suffered repeated traumas throughout their lives in addition to any intergenerational trauma they might have been born into. They are overwhelmingly poor, themselves victims of violence, often struggling with addiction and suffering from physical and mental health issues. So what kind of care can a person expect to receive once they enter a prison's walls? According to the Corrections Act of 2004, people in prison are entitled to a health triage when they first arrive inside. Then a fuller medical assessment with a nurse and a further assessment if concerns are raised about their health. And every prison must have enough doctors to make sure that prisoners' medical needs are met. So the nurse comes down from medical and she gives medication breakfast. This is Becca. Um, Where you line up, you take it in front of the nurse, open your mouth, speak afterwards. So yeah, the nurse comes down three times a day. Um, But to get to see the nurse, you have to go to like what you'd call the fishbowl, where like the guards are. Um, in your unit and you'd get a medical chit and you'd fill it out and then you just go on a waiting list and you might see the doctor that week if not the next week. Yeah. New Zealand's healthcare system is significantly under-resourced outside of prison so it shouldn't be that surprising that it's like that on the inside too. And you hear when that nurse comes down she is just constantly harassed. Miss, 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 my cream, my medication, I've written a note, you know, when am I on the list? They just get harassed, you know, Um, because the girls need what they need, you know, and that's just how it is. I can completely understand that people in prison have the same sorts of ongoing health needs as people on the outside, like that isn't just going to miraculously change or disappear. Yeah, hard out. And I mean, when you're locked up and not well, it's not like you can just go to the chemist for strepsils or neurofin. You're relying completely on others to take care of you and, you know, you can start to get desperate. If you've got, like, a toothache in prison, they won't rip out a tooth. They won't give you any antibiotics. Panadol is what you are entitled to. Toothaches are a real major one in there. The girls will be just crying, just crying and crying and crying. I was like groaning like a fucking hippo. Remember Jamie? She and her partner were the ones who were arrested in the rain. Jamie was only in prison for eight weeks, but around the beginning of her third week, she suddenly got a stabbing pain in her abdomen. 
and I just didn't even care what my cellmate thought. You know when you're when you're in that much pain that you you can't like pull your fucking shit together kind of thing. It was like that, and I was just in such incredible pain. I remember saying to my cellmate like. I need, a, I need to go to fucking hospital, you need to call the guards. Like, she pressed the emergency button and it was like, I don't know, but maybe half an hour later and nobody had came. And I just thought, if I don't get down the stairs now, like, I don't, don't even know how I'm gonna make it down the stairs. Like, and um, I ended up falling anyway off my top bunk onto the floor and my cellmate is like banging on the door. And um, there's like a couple of times I managed to like scream out like real loud. The woman in nearby cells started yelling too, trying to get the guards' attention. The officers finally turned up and realised pretty quickly that Jamie needed an ambulance. And then so I got handcuffed to a guard and um, they put a like a monitor thing on my ankle and then I got transported. In the ambulance, Jamie was given pain relief and then was sent to get some scans and had to take off all of her clothes from the waist down. She was still handcuffed to a guard. So I like managed to like wriggle my pants off and then I get this blanket and the guard takes my blanket and then so the nurse comes back and I'm obviously naked like from the waist down and she's like, oh darling, where's your blanket? And I was just like pointed at the um, the screw that I was handcuffed to and she goes to her, oh, she, she doesn't need it. If I hadn't have been so drugged up, I would have been like, what the fuck? But I just didn't even give a shit at the time. And so the nurse grabbed another blanket and put another blanket over me anyway. The nurse started to give Jamie an internal scan, but the corrections officer kept moving around and kicking Jamie's bed. The nurse was kept saying to her, can you please stop, you keep moving the bed and I can't get a proper read on the scan with you doing that. And she just kept doing it and doing it. And then so the nurse ended up saying, look, can we not just handcuff her to the bed? She's naked from the waist down, she's drugged up, she's attached to her IV, like she's not going anywhere. Jamie eventually got her diagnosis. I had a um, cyst on my ovary that ruptured and so I stayed in hospital for that night and the next day and then transported back to prison. We asked corrections about this event. They said they're not able to discuss prisoners' private medical information due to privacy obligations and are not aware of these specific allegations. They said that behaviour as alleged wouldn't be acceptable under any circumstance. They also said they encouraged Jamie to make a formal complaint so they can investigate further. I think there are a lot of stories I could tell. This is Tila Moose again, from People Against Prisons Aotearoa, or PAPA, and he's also a lecturer at Te Heringawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. And T actually did his master's thesis on the reasons people have died while in the care of corrections. One of the deaths that I looked at in my master's, a man who was assaulted in prison and had his arm broken, was denied sufficient pain medication, was basically just given Panadol. So this guy then wrote some poetry expressing the degree of pain that he was experiencing as the justification for him taking his own life. And this is a common theme. There are other people whose deaths I investigated that were treated in a similar way. At the time he spoke to us, Tila Moose actually had a friend whose brother was in Christchurch Men's Prison, recovering from throat cancer. And he is in extraordinary pain. 
and he has seen pain specialists from Canterbury DHB. He's got multiple second opinions, all of whom are saying this person is experiencing extraordinary levels of pain and needs pain medication. But Corrections has time and again denied him access to medication that he has been prescribed. He is also at extreme risk of self-harm. We also asked Corrections about this, and they said the same as before. The information is confidential, this behaviour isn't acceptable, and they're not aware of these specific allegations. This leads us into another really important area of order of health, which is mental health. This is another area where New Zealand struggles generally, even outside of prison, but once you're on the inside, things can get even more grim. As we already know, 9 out of 10 people in prison have been diagnosed with a mental illness, a substance use disorder, a traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder over their lifetime. Yeah man, and people in prison are also at least 8 times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. And actually, despite the fact that the prison population in New Zealand is going down, the number of apparent suicides and incidents of self-harm where there was a threat to life increased during the last financial year. The Office of the Inspectorate, that's Corrections' internal but independent team of prison inspectors, are currently looking into this issue. I went through um, depression and anxiety a lot. So this is my bro Paul again. I guess it's hard for even a person on the outside to be able to express that they have a problem with depression and anxiety, but in there it's um, seen as a target. And it was hard to be able to talk to staff or anyone about it because you usually got nowhere with staff. You know, there would be only a handful of staff on all the legs that I've done that you could sort of talk to about, I need help. This was especially hard for Paul because he knew firsthand how bad things could go when you didn't get the help you needed on the inside. My younger brother, he, um, he got himself into a little bit of trouble and he ended up in prison. Paul describes his brother as his best mate. They're two of 11 kids, five brothers in the same house, but other half-siblings scattered over the neighbourhood. When Paul was five, he and his mate were stealing lollies from Woolworths and the cops dropped them home. Paul got in big trouble for this. Home wasn't a safe place for the kids, so they'd spend as much time as they could out of the house, hooning around Upper Hutt on BMX bikes or playing rugby. Like so many in this podcast, when Paul's brother was put in those cells, he was at an all-time low. There were warning signs of him not being okay. He was stuck in remand, didn't know how long he was looking at. Paul was actually in prison at the same time and was trying to get a visit in to see his brother. You're usually allowed to visit your family members. So my PCO said it was okay and his PCO said no. And once they refused that, a couple of days later he killed himself. Paul doesn't blame the PCO for what happened. For me to continue living the way that I live, I have to let those things go. She's human, you know. But he does sometimes wonder if his visit might have made a difference. Yep. It could have. I don't know. I try not to look at the what-ifs. One thing that I do know is that once we got his diary and his letters, you could see that... um. His depression had gone so bad that 
his choice to take his own life was a choice to try to find peace, try to um, stop living in pain. Our current mental health system is so fundamentally broken. Here's Taylor Moose again. In his thesis, T found one particularly strong link when it came to the reason people self-harm or die by suicide in prison. So it's very much linked to solitary confinement. People Against Prisons Aotearoa have waged a campaign against what T just called solitary confinement. This isn't actually a term corrections uses anymore. They say segregation or ISU, which I'll explain in a minute. But in practice, they all look like this. Solitary confinement refers to a situation where someone is put in a cell by themselves for 22 to 24 hours a day and is deprived of meaningful human contact, right? Um, So that doesn't mean, you know, their casual conversation with the guard, but, you know, has no real meaningful way to to socialise with other people. There are a few reasons why someone might be separated from the rest of the prison population. If you misbehave, get violent, or threaten what Corrections calls the security, good order and safety of the prison, you get sent to SEGS. We used to call this the pound, and it's kind of like a, a status symbol to get sent there. You can also go into SEGS for protective reasons. Maybe someone you narked on is in prison, or you've been convicted of child sex offending. But if you voluntarily go into SEGS, mainstream prisoners will give you shit for being scared. And then there's the ISU, which I mentioned before. This is intervention and support, segregation for medical reasons, and it's used when corrections see someone as having acute mental health issues or being suicidal. But no matter what the justification, organisations like PAPA are keen to see segregation ended, because research shows that even short stints can have long-term psychological impacts. In fact, anything longer than 15 days of it is considered by the UN to be profoundly inhumane. Putting someone who is at risk of self-harm in a solitary confinement unit is the exact opposite of a therapeutic intervention, right? It actually makes people more likely to harm themselves, even if they don't do it while they're in the unit, much more likely to harm themselves as soon as they get out. In 2020, our chief ombudsman made a surprise visit to Parimoremo, Aotearoa's only maximum security prison. Inspectors discovered nine prisoners who'd been held in one form of solitary confinement for more than three months. Two of these people were in solitary for over a year. There are people who wait weeks, sometimes months, in solitary confinement units to be transferred to a secure mental health facility. There was a case, at the time of recording, there was a case a couple of days ago of a woman in Christchurch who was held in prison for a couple of weeks because there were no beds in any Christchurch mental health facilities. there, were, there are cases of people who have taken their own lives in prison waiting to be transferred to mental health facilities, right? And so this, this is a really broken part of our, of our mental health system and our justice system that is causing a great, great deal of harm. It's unnecessary. We don't need to be treating people like this. We reached out to Corrections for comment on directed segregation. His chief custodial officer, Neil Beals. Corrections hires more psychologists than any other organisation in the country, which shows you, you know, that we know what the focus needs to be. But, but the problem is, of course, that people are only accessing that once they come to prison, and you know, large largely, and that's not right in my book. You know, so um, whilst we can deal with people when they're in prison and we can provide as much of that as we possibly can, my point, the point that I'm trying to drive at, is I would like to see a society in the future where they get that treatment before they fall into the justice system. 
Beals also said that directed segregation doesn't necessarily mean someone will be entirely cut off from all human contact. And the people that go to the uh, intervention and supervision units or the old at-risk units are not necessarily segregated with denied association either. Uh, very often they'll be allowed to associate with other people in that unit. So it, it's looked at on an individual risk base. You know, what, what harm it does a person present to themselves? What harm does that person present to other people? However, the inspectors at Paremoremo who found those prisoners in solitary for way too long describe the use of segregation there as a culture of containment rather than rehabilitation. So corrections might know where the focus needs to be, but it hasn't always happened in practice. So many people who've been through our prisons have lived through incredible hardship beforehand and that doesn't magically stop afterwards. Too many people will spend their whole lives in and out of prison, but some do manage to turn things around. After giving birth in handcuffs, Becca was taken back to prison, but she was given one more chance to see her daughter. About six days later, after writing heaps of letters and getting my lawyers involved, I was allowed one visit back up to the hospital to see my baby. After that, Oranga Tamariki placed Becca's baby into the permanent care of a loving mum who wanted to give her a home. Six weeks later, I was accepted into drug court and I was, there was a bed for me at Odyssey House. So Becca's referring to the alcohol and other drug treatment court. This started in 2012 and it's an alternative to prison for people whose offending is driven by alcohol or drug addiction. And Odyssey House is the name of the rehab that Becca accessed through the drug court. While they're going through the drug court programme, a person sentencing is deferred. They're monitored, tested and given mentoring and eventually they graduate in this pretty cool ceremony. Becca had actually gone through the drug courts before so she knew that recovery was possible. She was determined to keep it going this time. Because I'm not really a God believer but I just prayed or spoke to my higher power, whatever you call it. I spoke to the universe and I just said, if I get bail, I'll do whatever it takes to um, put the work in so I don't have to come back. But I know from experience that addiction recovery isn't a linear process and it took her another few years to stay on track. Becca did have someone in her corner though, her boyfriend, who was arrested at the same time as her. And we were writing back and forth. We'd been talking about living a different lifestyle. We, before we got arrested, we were both on the meth, committing crime and all this sorts of carry-on and... We talked about this life that we'd wanted. You've actually met the guy she's talking about, Rangi. Very, very good looking, my husband, and he has a very good body. And this is how Rangi talks about her. And uh, with the grace of my um, beautiful wife by my side, doors are opening and uh, life is becoming more and more enjoyable. Becca finished up her last home D in post-detention stints in 2018 and has now been clean for over five years. We said if we get out, you know, we will live a happily ever after and we are living a happily ever after. We bought a house, we run a business, we don't do drugs, we don't have the police showing up on our doorstep. We're part of a trust. We're part of our community, we have responsibilities, we have an amazing lifestyle now. I'm making amends by going out and doing community gardens, helping low-income families with food and firewood and stuff like that. I've got 
my own business that I own and operate. Um, I own my own home, my own vehicles and stuff like that. Yeah, it's just getting better and better every day. Life's getting better every day. It's like a dream come true, you know? And it's not even like um, fancy or anything. It's just uh, so simple. Yeah, just simple living. Um, I live in an um, area where all my neighbours are hunters and gatherers and people, you know, they come and drop off um, fresh meat and um, uh, we all do it. We all drop one another off stuff. Um, I just, I just keep to a simple um, routine. Well, I can, I can get up and go to work if I want. I can get up and go to the gym if I want. I can get up and just go for a ride on my Harley if I want. You know, I'm because I'm my boss. I'm the boss. Uh, I have a purpose now, and it pulls me forward. Uh, it helps me on those those tough days where I feel like I'm, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. But I just look back and I think now, and I like think to my purpose, and boom, I got that energy to carry on, move forward. And Becca still gets to see her little girl on video calls every month. She says they have a great relationship. She's healthy, bright, intelligent kid. Yeah, cool. happy kid. So I'd been out of prison for. Over a year. Now we're back with Awatea Mita. When I came out, like I never had a fear of being in a crowd, but uh, when I came out of prison, I couldn't stand to be, like I couldn't go to a pack and save. Took a long time, took a lot of support. Eventually, Awatea applied to go to university where she began to study criminology. And this is while she was still on probation. I was in strict conditions. I had to apply three times before I could come down here. But in my first week of uni, I was at the hub at um, Victoria University, Tehiringawaka, and uh, Tuesday I was like, nah, I'm over it. Like, I'm not going to be able to make it. You know, there's just so many people there, and I was like, nah, this, this isn't for me. After and, her time in prison, uni was super overwhelming, and Awatea wasn't sure whether she could handle it. She started uni on a Monday, and by Tuesday she was ready to chuck it in. Then a friend reached out to her to have coffee somewhere on campus. Like, so that's made a huge difference in my life. I was ready to walk. But just having a cup of coffee with somebody, you might not kind of comprehend the world of difference that it can make. In 2021, Awatea received first class honours at the Hedinawaka Victoria University of Wellington and became the proud recipient of the Māori Masters by Thesis Scholarship. She now works as a teaching fellow with a criminology programme there and contracts to the Ministry of Justice as the Restorative Justice Administrator. I actually thought I'd never get a job. You know, I'd, I'd never um, be able to participate in respectable, uh, polite society. That I was just like, you know, really a damaged person. I was too damaged to change. And it's been the support of other people who um, have helped me to be able to achieve all the things that I have. And I don't think Awatea is ever going to stop sharing her story or uplifting the stories of wahine Māori she spent time inside with. She believes that the first step to true healing is bringing all of this darkness into the light. While we have prisons, we're never going to plug that hole of harm. There's always going to be more and more harms that are being like hidden from us and then, you know, it takes a long time and a lot of hard work and, and people who care 
before those harms see the light of day and that we get um, some change. I reckon Tila Moose sums all of this up beautifully. We have a system that is causing unnecessary suffering and it's being done in our name. You know, it's been done in the name of all New Zealanders who, you know, this is our justice system and it is supposedly to benefit us that we are making people live in excruciating pain. It's done in our names. It's not just the responsibility of corrections to fix this injustice, but it's all of our responsibility as people living in Aotearoa. All right, Tommy, okay, I think I recognise a call to action when I hear one. Yep, same here. Namahi to all of you, the listeners, for being on this Heidegger with us. We've covered a lot of ground. We know that some of it is heavy listening, and we're really excited about the next episode. Coming up in the final episodes of True Justice, we're going to start hearing some stories of solutions. My needs were met. I was treated with respect. I'll never go back, that's for sure. Fuck, I'll never go back. No matter how deep the hole, there's always a way out. If you're not going to lock people up forever, and we don't, what do you need to do to get them back? We can't wait to catch you for the next episode. This episode of True Justice was hosted by me, Tommy Doran. And me, Anachaya Scotney. It was produced by Just Speak, a not-for-profit organisation that advocates for transformational change in the criminal justice system. Writing and research was a team effort by staff at Just Speak and PopSock Media, as well as former Just Speak advocacy lead, Emily Rosenthal. Editing and sound design was by PopSock Media, with music from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme music, What You Can Hear Now by Kōtiro, that's me with Thomas Arbor. You can find our song, All the Little Birds, on Bandcamp. Interviews and recordings with our storytellers and experts were done by Emily Rosenthal, Chantal Arfina, myself, and our amazing Just Speak volunteers. Narration, recording and mixing was by Phil Brownlee at Victoria University's Miramar Creative Centre. Our journalistic and legal checks and balances came from Francis Morton, Anna Harcourt and the legal team at TVNZ's youth news platform, RE, who supported this project. Our heartfelt thanks to all the people who shared their stories, experiences and whakaaro with us and we hope that their korero has enlightened you to what is really happening in the criminal justice system and what true justice really looks like. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.